How would you like to be the one speaking after that? <laughs> Not to mention the roast beef lunch, the testimony this morning. Thank you again for sharing that, Larry. As I said to you, bro, I've heard it at least five or six times, and I still cry like a baby every time I hear it. <clears throat> it's amazing. God is in the business of changing lives, isn't he? He still does it. David and I are the weepers, by the way. David Dixon Sr. I mean, it's like a, you just push this Joe button, and all of a sudden the tears well up. So I'm with you, bro. I love you. You know, it, and I don't want to sound negative by any, way, by any means, but, you, you know, there would be a lot of conferences across the country today that if the chairman asked all those under the age of 30 to sing, it might be a solo or a duet. I started singing, and then someone's like, Joe, you're, you're not under 30, right? <laughs> Medicine, we call that delusions, right? <clears throat> so I'm uh, 30 plus a few, plus 12, to be blunt, uh, but I'm uh, just so thankful, and God bless this young people. And, and I know it's easy to say, and you know, Larry and I know, it's easy to go around as you travel to preach in different places and, and always say, you know, this is my favorite conference, right? Next week, this is my favorite <laughs> conference. Um, so I don't try to say favorite conference, but let me tell you, I love the group of people in this room. Some of you I don't know yet, some of you I only know a little bit, some of you I've known for many years, and Heather knows that I get so excited when I'm coming over to Claremont, and one of these times she will come with me with the girls. Um, they send their love. I just talked to them between <clears throat> the meetings, and uh, Katie is particularly excited for me to be home for Sunday night, sushi night, for those of you who remember that. In fact, I was so touched last year when the whole group of young people, I don't know if the rest of you know this, but the whole group of young people went out for sushi last Sunday night, last year, when I was here on the Sunday night, and then sent me a picture of it. I kept that picture, right? I know for Larry, who might think that we're eating fish bait or something, that's all right, but, but, um, but I, I mean that because, you know, there's some preachers who get in the pulpit, you never want them to come down, and there are others who you never want them to get up. And uh, I, I like to say that, you know, ministry is a lot more about what you, is more than just what you say. It's the, rea the, the interactions you have with individuals. And last night, I was really touched by spending the evening with the young people there and having a chance to listen to Larry and share a little bit in the Word of God and the Markleys, whom I call mom and dad now, because I stay with them so much. Um, uh, their, their hospitality towards, a, towards me has, has been remarkable. And uh, I've really enjoyed the time with you. And I know I can speak for Larry that he's enjoyed it very much. And you'll get a chance to hear Larry again uh, next year, Lord willing. And uh, not sure when our paths will cross again, but I know they will. So I'm not worried about it. And we're thankful again. And we appreciate your kindness and generosity in bringing us here. John chapter 4. <clears throat> John chapter 4. I know that there are some who were unable to be here for the rest of the weekend. I'm not going to recap all that we've looked at. I'll just summarize it by saying... I have played the role of lawyer this weekend. You know, doctors and lawyers, we just get along so well. And um, I have been trying to make the case for the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, such that every time an Old Testament character is mentioned, they are mentioned explicitly to demonstrate to us that the Lord Jesus is greater. I hope I've convinced you thus far that he's greater than Moses, that he's greater than Elijah, the greatest of prophets. He's greater uh, than Abraham, the father of the nation, greater than David, indeed, uh, the greatest king that the nation ever saw. And there are others. Time would fail us to talk about Solomon, 
Time would fail us to talk about Jacob, although we'll make reference to Jacob today. But I'd like to close our series this weekend about thinking how the Lord Jesus is superior to Joseph. You know, Joseph is a very unique character in the Word of God for a lot of reasons, not to mention his great name. But um, uh, Joseph uh, is, is interesting in that I remember once I, I gave a message on, on uh, how we see so many examples in Joseph's life of the Lord Jesus. And someone was a little bit sort of offended by it and said, you know, he's not really a type of Christ because he's not mentioned in the New Testament to be that self-same type. So for those of you who are sticklers with the word typology, we tend to use it when we know for a fact that the New Testament has confirmed that this thing in the Old Testament was an example. So when you read in 1 Corinthians that that rock was Christ, and the verse says that, then you say, okay, I can look back and say that that rock was representative of Christ, the rock that was smitten, and the water came forth to, to, to uh, exhaust the thirst of those who were there. So technically, I guess we could argue, because Joseph is not stated, he's stated in the passage we're about to read, but he's not stated, if you will, as a type of Christ. But then one other brother came to me and said, you know, on the other hand, um, I don't think we're going to get to heaven and say, you know what, I think I saw the Lord Jesus a few too many times in the Old Testament. So yes, there might be specific rules of typology, but let me share with you what I love to share so often. The Lord Jesus is on every single page of this book. And it's not hard to find him. And as you have a deeper appreciation of him with your mind and indeed your heart, you will find him all the more. It's striking how many times you're just reading what seems to be a typical story that you know so well, uh, and maybe you learned it in Sunday school or learned it even later in life, and then all of a sudden you find the Lord Jesus appears in the story as you come to appreciate it. And hopefully uh, we've had that experience this weekend. And so Joseph is someone we're going to examine today. He is explicitly mentioned here in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 4. And let's read uh, a passage here together, and then we'll read a little bit from the Old Testament to give us background. You may have remembered that at one point in the weekend I mentioned the Gospel of John is often, uh, often gives us specific detail, much more than the other Gospels, about the precise movements of the Lord Jesus that it's almost a cyclical nature, that he's down in the southern part of Israel and then goes up to the northern part, and southern part and northern part. I'm not going to give you a geography lesson. Don't look at your Bibles now. You're not allowed to go to the back and look at the maps. Uh, but I'll give you a very simple outlay of the uh, geography of the place in just a moment. But let's read together. In verse 3 of John 4, it says, He, speaking of the Lord Jesus, left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And all you need to know, if you're not familiar with the area, is that... Uh, Galilee is south, and uh, sorry, Ju- Judea is south, and Galilee is north. Right, so we're le- we're going from California to Washington State. All right, let me make it really simple. Right, so um, so you can see why they don't speak well of those who come from Washington State. I don't know if there's anybody from Washington State here. I'll get in trouble. But um, so so he's moving north. Now, what's very important to understand is that you would not typically go straight north. Right, you wouldn't want to go through Sacramento or something. You know. <laughs> For those of you from Sacramento, I heart you, okay? I do. I love you. If I, if I could Facebook you right now, I would like you, all right? Um, but what would happen was, you know, they, they as, as you quite likely know the story, the Orthodox Jews, and really not so Orthodox Jews, the Jews in general, so disliked 
what they would have to pass through to get to Galilee, that instead of just going north as you would expect them to, you know, the fastest point, but fastest way to get from two points is a straight line, they would actually travel eastward, cross the Jordan River, travel up what we sometimes call the Eastern Plateau, where we have a whole set of other places that I won't bore you with, and then cross the Jordan back again into Galilee. So you take this big detour, if you will, skipping Sacramento to get into Washington State, you take that big circuit. Why? Because in the middle was Samaria. And I don't want to dwell too much on this. You're quite likely familiar with this. But the Samaritans, an interesting group of individuals, we discussed them at our assembly a few weeks ago when we were studying Ezra. These were a product of, if you will, a half-breed product of those who, where there was intermarriage between the Jews and the Gentiles. And yet they were a very uh, small, smaller group that stayed quite pure to their roots. In fact, they're still, if you will, residual Samaritans today. And in medicine... It's interesting to us in some respects because there's some unique diseases that are much more prevalent in that small group of people than elsewhere. But the Jews hated them so much that they didn't even want to walk through their land. In fact, on a sunny day like today, if a Samaritan walked past me, I wouldn't retain the spit that was in my mouth. And that's the amount of hatred, sadly, that there was between them. And you'll see that described here if you're not familiar with it. But I love how verse 4 reads, because it says he, speaking again of the Lord Jesus, and he must needs go through Samaria. Why is it so needful for him? It's an interesting little expression. You might want to do a study sometime. I don't think I gave you enough homework yesterday afternoon. Study when people need in the scripture to do something. There aren't very many of them, but here was one of them. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And that, of course, is a sign to you. Remember I mentioned yesterday, the Bible's not filled with filler, right? There's no extra, just cute detail here. The author is trying to have you understand. There's something relevant about the story of the Lord Jesus going to Samaria that connects us to Jacob and Joseph. Specifically in the next verse, Now Jacob's well was there. So hopefully, with the interest that I'm trying to bring out in all of us of studying the word of God, this makes me say, and hopefully makes you say, hmm, I better find out about Jacob's well. Right? All in agreement, sit down. Good. All right? So you're with me, right? I think someone just stood up in the back. No. so we're going to come to Jacob's well in a moment. We'll fill in that detail. So, so don't, don't forget that. Have a little mental placeholder. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. One, one last bit of homework here, and I think I have maybe given you this homework before, but it's one of my favorites. Please notice the times in the life of the Lord Jesus where we see explicitly that he was human, that there was no denying it. Like here, he's weary. He must be a man. I guarantee you, if you read within the same context of the passage, the Lord will reveal his deity, that he was God. So, for example, he fell asleep in the boat, remember? What was he doing a few minutes later, speaking to the wind and the waves? He cried in John 11. You've got to be human to cry. And a few minutes later, he's raising Lazarus from the dead. It's beautiful how the word of God protects the human perfection of the Lord Jesus. 
He was indeed man, but he indeed is God. He cries, I thirst from the cross. And a few minutes later, he himself gives up his spirit. And that way, they didn't take the life of the Lord Jesus. He gave it up himself. And so here, he's wearied, so he sits down, and in a few minutes, he's going to be telling this woman her history that only God could know. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary of his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That's going to be important. We're in the middle of a hot day. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. I mean, no surprise, he's thirsty. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am in a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. You know that now. You're experts in that. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So the Lord Jesus is clearly upping the ante here. He's not talking about uh, uh, this uh, uh, physical water that we have. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? She introduces the question, just like we saw with Abraham yesterday. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said unto her, Sir, she's changed her tone now, started with thou being a Jew. And now she's like, okay, I'll call him sir. Uh, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus said unto her, go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou hast now uh, hast is not thy husband. In that thou sets, in that sets thou truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. So he's gone from thou being a Jew to sir to now a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. See what she's doing? She's she's testing the Lord Jesus. And if I can make an editorial comment on the side. You're here today, and you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior. Let me encourage you to test him. You know, I sometimes say that to my friends. I say, you know, if I give them a Bible to read or or a New Testament or even the Gospel of John, I, I don't say, look you know, blindly believe everything you read. Because sometimes that's how they think we are, right? We're just sort of, bah, bah, sheep. We'll just believe anything. I say that, read it like you're going to read the New York Times. No disrespect to the New York Times, but not everything in the New York Times is completely accurate. I know that might be a shocker to some of you. But when you read the newspaper, you know that there's going to be mistakes. You take it with a little bit of a grain of salt when you watch the news, right? Whether you watch one end of the news or the other end of the news, you know, fair and balanced or other... You know, there's always, there's always a, a, a spin, if you will, to it. But I say to them, look, just read it like you'd read that. That's not to belittle the word of God. But, but faith is not about me coming in, mouth wide open, I'll believe anything you tell me. Faith is coming to trust that God is trustworthy 
He'll prove himself to you. Just like he proved himself to this woman. So much so as we're going to see in a moment that she had to go tell other people. Uh, she became a Samaritan missionary. So she tests the Lord almost. She must be thinking to her head, all right, I know a few things about religion. I know a bit of theology. Let me put this prophet to the test. Because you say we should worship, you say you worship in Jerusalem and we worship here. Come on, tell me something, preacher boy. You know, what, what's, what's going on here? And look what he says. Woman, believe me, verse 21, the hour cometh. When ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. To explain, it's not a geographical point. It's not where you worship, if you will. It's who you worship. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Now, she definitely has some religious interest here, doesn't she? She knows some things. Jesus saith unto her, very bluntly, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples. Oh, interrupted the story. That is capturing the prophecies that are going to be stated about each of Jacob's sons. And there's, there's an interesting comment that's made about them. This is made in real time. So this isn't made after the fact. This is made while they were still children. And yet, it describes their current character, but it was also going to be prophetic of the future. Right? You know, we sometimes wonder what, what is going to happen to our kids. You know, we look at them now, and I look at my two daughters, and I sometimes wonder how they both came out of the same womb because they're so different, but God bless them, I love them. And we wonder what's going to happen in the future. But here, Jacob is recounting something that expresses their past but will clearly express their future. And I just want to cut out the section that is referenced of Joseph. So verse 22 of Genesis 49 says... Please notice these words carefully. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well. Ding, 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 ding. Does anybody remember well? Was anybody here seven minutes ago? Anyone still have roast beef that's being digested, that is falling asleep? So, so remember when we read the story in John 4, it says that explicitly the Lord Jesus met with this woman next to where Jacob's well was, okay? A fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. Speaking, of course, of what happened to him in his life when he was hated by his brothers. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his uh, of sorry, and the arms of his and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee, and by the Almighty who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings, please notice this verse, the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. This was beautifully prophetic of really what happened in Joseph's life, wasn't it? 
hated by his brothers, shot at, if you will, they, but his bow abode in strength. He was strengthened not because he was brilliant or because he was particularly powerful, but because he trusted in the Almighty. He was brought out of the prison, even after the event in Potiphar's house. He was brought into Pharaoh's court, and he was the vehicle by which, if you don't know the story well, he was the vehicle by which the whole world, the known world, was fed. Because when everybody else was in famine, they had food because the Lord had told him that after these seven days of, full, of plenty, there's going to be seven years of drought. And when those famine days come, you better have built up stores. And so they built up stores so that in the time of famine, when everyone else hadn't prepared, they came to Joseph. Because Joseph was the source of food and sustenance to them. Hopefully you're already starting to make the connections between what the Lord Jesus is doing with this woman in Samaria and what Joseph did in his lifetime. Because let me remind you that the benefit of Joseph was not just felt in Egypt, but was felt throughout the whole of the land unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. As we'll see in a moment, just like the Lord Jesus is not the savior of a couple of people here and there. He is the savior of the world. So how do we make these connections together? Let's go back to John 4. And let's think through this passage together. You know me, I love lists. So I'm going to give you another list of, anyone guess the number? Somewhere between six and eight. You're brilliant, Rachel. Seven. So seven things about this text. They all begin with the letter P, which helps me remember them and hopefully will help you remember them. Number one, the place. We've talked a little bit about this already. This is no surprise that it's happening in Samaria. It's happening near to the place where Jacob gave uh, that well, as we've heard, to his son Joseph. I've mentioned already that the Lord Jesus was not going to be like everyone else, avoiding Samaria, but he must needs go through Samaria. Why? Because he loved the Samaritan. He loved the ones that other people weren't willing to love. I suspect that you were touched as I was listening to Larry as he looks through that plexiglass and tries to figure out who these people are knocking at his prison door saying, Jesus loves you and we love you too. You see, that's a wonderful and beautiful feature of the Lord Jesus is that when he, when the scripture tells us for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it doesn't mean that he only loves this bit of the world or the western world or you know, the city of Claremont. <laughs> I serve a Savior who loves every person on this planet and longs for everyone on this planet to respond to his love. That's fundamental. Please don't limit the love of God. Now, it's quite interesting that Samaria is invoked here. You know, we could do a whole series. I've actually done a whole series on the, the, all the references to Samaria in the scripture. There's one that you tend to know pretty well. Right? You remember the story of the man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he falls amongst thieves and he gets beaten up and left half dead the side of the road and all the, you know, the upstanding religious people walk by and they just sort of turn their head and walk away and leave him there. And here comes this you know, St. John's Ambulance Samaritan 
with his donkey, probably had a little red X on it as well, you know, as a medical symbol, who's going around helping people and, and takes this, this Jewish individual, binds up their wounds, carries them on their mule back to their, their preferred hotel that they take care of these people and pays for this person to be restored. You can read that story and say, isn't that a great story? The Good Samaritan, isn't that nice? We should care for the people when other people don't. The religious community might leave someone behind, but we have to go and reach out and help people. It's a beautiful story, and I agree with that interpretation. But you understand there's a much deeper interpretation, don't you? If I'm traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, I'm taking the exact path. Not only am I going down geographically speaking, it's about a 3,000-foot drop. I'm also taking a bit of a, um, a, a religious change, if you will, or a spiritual difference between the city of Jerusalem and the city of Jericho. But that is the exact path that you would take if you wanted to go from Judea to Galilee. Because you'd go down to Jericho, literally, as the story says, the man went down to Jericho. You would cross the Jordan River, head up that eastern plateau, as I've mentioned, and then cross back over to get into Galilee. So I don't want to be too fanciful with it, but in the story of the Good Samaritan, it's quite likely that this person who fell among thieves was traveling in a direction to avoid the Samaritans. And who shows up to take care of them but a Samaritan? I mean, that's ironic to say the least. And here comes this Samaritan who's in the business of rescuing people when no one else wants to rescue them, binds up their wounds, and delivers them to safety. Let me ask you, do you know anyone else like that? Oh, the Lord Jesus, if you will, is the good Samaritan, isn't he? He's the one who rescues us when no one else can. The one you may be trying to avoid today. But the only one who can rescue you. And so I love that verse. He must needs go through Samaria. The Lord Jesus wasn't going to avoid these Samaritans. I, I bet you the, the uh, disciples weren't so keen, you know. They were wondering about him even talking to someone. Can you imagine when he says, okay, you know what, um, gentlemen, we're going to stay here for a couple of days. No? It's like we tell the girls, okay, we're going to travel here. We're going to stay here two days. Like, oh, it feels like an eternity to them. You know, can't we? Let's move on. Let's move. Imagine they wanted, they would have, it would have gone against their grain. But how wonderful the outcome of the story that we'll come to later. Not only was it in Samaritan, we saw that I think I'm in, in, in just uh, cause to go back as we did to Genesis and see what was said about Jacob and Joseph, because they're referenced here. And we saw that well that was referred to. And that indeed brings us to our second P in the story. Number one was the place. Number two was the prophecy. We can spend a lot of time going through all the detail of the verses that we read in Genesis 49, but let me summarize them with the four key statements of Joseph. Number one, he's a fruitful bough. Number two, he's planted by a well. Number three, he has branches that run over the wall. And number four, the blessing goes to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Fruitful bough, planted by a well, branches running over the wall, blessings to the everlasting hills. And you could say that absolutely those four things characterize Joseph. He was the fruitful bough, wasn't he? He was the one who had the fruit when everybody else was dry. 
He was planted by a well. He had access to resources that others did not. His branches ran over the wall. What wall is that referring to? There's different walls in the scripture. I mean, I could suggest that someone would study the walls of scripture as another homework assignment, but because I've already met my limit, I'm not going to explicitly say that. But if you wanted to, you could look at that. But the, perhaps the best known wall was often called the middle wall of partition, was the wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. This had ramifications in the tabernacle, it had ramifications in the temple, and it had ramifications in public in general, that there was a distinction between them. But Joseph, being Jewish, but living in Egypt, interestingly, his branches ran over the wall. Why? Because it reached out and touched the Egyptians. Egyptians were the beneficiaries of it. In fact, it was more than that. It was the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, meaning that the blessing went out to the whole known world at the time. All these nations were coming to Egypt for food. More Egyptian food. How does that keep coming up? I, I, I don't understand it. Anyway, and, and, and so you could say these four things are true of Joseph. What's our whole premise this weekend? A greater than Joseph is here. Can you describe the Lord Jesus like a fruitful bough? <laughs> he said it himself, didn't he? I am the vine and you are the branches. He is the one who can bring fruit. He's about to bring fruit to this woman. He's about to bring water to her that will cause her to never thirst again. I mean, I don't know if there's anyone else in this room who's like me, but I kind of like food, right? right? Am I right or am I right? That's my friends in New York say they don't give you a choice. Am I right or am I right? I guess you're right. Um, we love food, but you know, the thing about food is eat, no matter how much you're enjoying that bacon at breakfast time, as you, as you take that bite of bacon that Betty made for me this morning, it was delicious, and I have a thing for bacon, I think it comes with the Y chromosome as men, but um, you know that a couple hours later, you're going to be hungry again, right? I mean, just there's, there's no ultimate satisfying meal. You might feel tremendously well and satisfied right now. We had a great roast beef lunch. But, you know, you're going to get hungry again. The Lord Jesus wanted to bring her something that was longer lasting than any given meal. The Lord Jesus is indeed that fruitful bough. No one else has his resources. Is he planted by a well? Well, you know, sometimes we sing the song from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. He's planted like, he's like a tree planted by streams of living water. And his fruit does not wither. doesn't perish. We, we sing that song saying, well, we want to be that blessed person, right? We want to be the one who's in touch with the resources of God. Next time you read Psalm 1, read it thinking about the Lord Jesus. Because in a sense, we could consider it, not in the formal way, a messianic song. Because he is the blessed man who's planted by the water. The Lord Jesus is greater than Joseph. Much like we saw with, with Moses, what Joseph could provide physically the Lord Jesus provides spiritually. I mean, to be honest, Joseph gave them some food and water, something to eat and something to drink, and that's all they could get. The Lord Jesus brings something better. What about this third notion? Not only is he fruitful bough, not only is he planted by a well, his branches run over the wall. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus is doing. He's walking right through that wall to go into Samaria. 
You could almost, you could almost have a running commentary on the side if you were reporting the news of, you know, this just in. Jesus is traveling through Samaria. You know, your subtitle could be, what wall? Right? Because to the Jewish mind, there was a wall. I don't, go, I don't go through Samaria. I go around it. The Lord Jesus is going through it. Better yet, more than just what happens in this episode in John chapter 4, how beautiful when we're later in the New Testament, it's describing the salvation that the Lord Jesus brings. It doesn't just say that he went through the wall. It says he has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So that today, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter what background is, when you are saved, you are part of the family of God. We are one in Christ. We love and respect our differences from ethnicity and backgrounds and foods and things that we enjoy, but we are one in Christ. Sometimes we don't reflect that in the church, do we, so well? But how wonderful, isn't it lovely when you meet a believer for the first time? I was saying, when I just flew into the meeting on on Friday night, the gentleman sitting next to me flying from Dallas to here, um, as as I had to come through Dallas from here, he, we were just getting on, we had just gotten on the plane, the plane had just taken off, and he opened up his little lunch bag, and I saw him close his eyes and pray before he ate. Like, sometimes the Lord is not so subtle, right, you know? So I start talking to him, there's a, there's a believer in the Lord. He's originally from the Philippines, a wonderful, wonderful brother. I mean, we have a connection like that. You know, we talk to sometimes young people like, oh, but we connect so well together. You know, there's this mystical, you know, magical connection that we have. And they think the way I do and they see the things the way I do. Scripture says it clear. How can two walk together lest they be agreed? If you don't share the most important thing in the universe in common, it's hard to walk together. And someone who doesn't know the Lord. But we have a connection that is remarkable. That middle wall of partition is broken down. And I love traveling to assemblies like this where you see people of all sorts of different backgrounds. And we're one in him. There's no greater unity than the unity that the Lord Jesus brings. And here is clearly where the Lord Jesus outstretches Joseph. Joseph may have fed all the nations around. But here we are thousands of years later and the Lord Jesus is still feeding us today. To the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. There isn't a hill in this, on this planet where the gospel cannot be declared. It's remarkable, isn't it? A greater than Joseph is here. You believe it yet? Maybe not. We still have lots of peace to go through. Okay, so the place, the prophecy. Number three, the problem. So there was a problem here. Um, The problem was thirsty, kind of like I am right now, right? Thirsty. Here the Lord Jesus is thirsty. As is this woman, she's come to draw water. Interestingly, she's drawing water in the middle of the day, which would not have been a typical thing to do. She was likely doing that, a little bit speculative, but she's likely doing that because she doesn't want to be seen in public or she's a little bit of a social outcast uh, because of the previous five husbands and her current uh, living partner was not her husband. Maybe she had to go and other people wouldn't see her. So she had to go. She had to take the hot shift. And everybody else was in the cool of, uh, of their homes or in the shade. She had to go with this heavy pot and go and get water. The flavoring we get from her life, the story of her previous husbands, the story of the questions she asked the Lord Jesus, 
She is thirsty and thirsty for more than something to drink. I've often quoted the notion, medically speaking, we have what's called a thirst center in our brains and it's triggered by various uh, hormones and patterns that you have in your body. So your body, for example, is always constantly checking your blood pressure, believe it or not. Some of us are higher than lower and lower, but it's constantly checking the flow of your blood through your vessels. And if you get a little bit dehydrated and there's not as much flow there and the heart has to pump a bit harder to get it through, little messages get sent up to your thirst center. If there's a problem with your kidneys, there's all sorts of different things. If you start sweating a lot, your body has all these different mechanisms to alert the thirst center. And the thirst center is what triggers this motion of events, which includes, you know, that a dry taste, that dry sense you get in your mouth. We can, we can check people, often and not until latter stages. Your mouth actually isn't dry. It's still well... Uh, 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 lubricated with your mucus and mucus membranes in your mouth, but it's a sense that you get, like, I need to go and get something to drink. Your body tells you that. You're built with an inherent thirst center. I suggest that not only do you have this thirst center up near your hypothalamus, you have a spiritual thirst center. We all want something more. I'm not trying to insert thoughts in your brain that may be not there. But let me ask you in all honesty, when you're sitting alone and your mind gets racing and you get thinking, don't you want more? I don't mean want more like I just want a bigger bank account or a bigger house or a nicer car. But isn't there a sense of longing in your heart to be fulfilled with something? Some of what we heard about in Larry's testimony Larry had access to all these things that the world thinks are the greatest things in the world. And there he is, not just because he's in his prison cell, but there he is thinking, there's got to be something more. We live in a, you live in particular here in a city of, of, in an area that is known for its wealth and its luxury. What do we learn from places like Beverly Hills? We learn that people can get it all and still be what appears to be the most unhappy people on the planet. Have you not seen that and experienced that to some degree in your life? That you get the things you think are going to make you happy? Like, oh, I need more, more, more. God, in a sense, has built you with that. He's built you with a drive, with a capacity to enjoy more. And let me tell you, there is something more. There is someone who can fill that void. We sang about it, well, at least the men sang about it in that one verse. Right? I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. E'en as I stooped to drink, they mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy. Now another name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy. Lord Jesus found in me. Careful what you sing. And I didn't even ask David to give that hymn. It's a beautiful hymn. Old school. And the broken cisterns of the world. It's a beautiful imagery, isn't it? That you think it's going to contain what's great. And then all of a sudden it's leaking and... All of a sudden, it's empty. So like this poor woman, she keeps coming with her empty water pot every day, fills it up. I want something to fill my tank. And so people will try everything on this planet to fill their tank, from vacations to money to psychology to drugs to food, you name it, to Sunday night football. At the end of the day, they're still not happy. And again, I don't want to false you, falsely make you think one thing or the other. 
but I meet a lot of people who have that veneer of happiness on the outside. You spend a little bit of time with them and you peel back that layer and you find there's a tremendous amount of longing underneath. Is that you? I used to do a fair amount of work when we lived in Ottawa, Canada, where we, we would do open-air preaching out on the street with um, our whiteboards with uh, fluorescent paint. And so I'd set up my whiteboard, and I'd do the box lettering, and um, people thought, oh, there's an artist. <laughs> like one stroke of the brush. Uh, honey, he's not an artist, right? <laughs> I describe myself as an illustrator, not an artist. But anyway... Um, and what I would often do is, is, if you've seen it done, you know we have these, what just looks like a ladder of, of blocks, uh, but you can make letters out of it, and with a black light, it, it, it really shines at night. It's quite something. We would do this in the dark. And uh, you'd kind of give a little message while you're doing this, and we had approval from the city, and it was, it was legal to do so. And, um, but what I would sometimes do is, before giving the message, I'd give away part of the words, because the, the exciting part is, as you touch these, these, these squares, letters appear that otherwise aren't there because it initially just looks like train tracks or something. But sometimes I would put a question up there first and wait to see. One of my favorite questions was, are you happy? That seemed to draw the biggest crowd. Because a lot of people pretend they are. But if you're really honest, they often are not. And I think this woman teaches us that. She wasn't just longing for physical water. She wasn't just longing for satisfaction. Even all of her questions to the Lord, she wanted something more. There was a problem. Well, number, the next number four, uh, P, is the promise. It's one thing to say you need something. If I don't have the answer to you, what's the point of asking the question? And the Lord Jesus makes a promise to her that if you taste of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. Oh, we physically thirst every day. You don't become a Christian, and then all of a sudden everything in your life is glorious and fantastic. Larry will attest to the fact that it had been challenged after the days of his salvation, like every one of us. And some people think that, oh, well, you become a Christian, everything's rosy and happy, and your life gets put back together, and all your addictions disappear, and your financial state is good, and you're surrounded by happy people like in this room, and everything is happy-go-lucky. It's not a fairy tale. You're going to face physical challenges. But underlying it all, you have an absolute confidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're his. That your future, future destiny is secure. But not just the future, but your present destiny is secure. That he gives us something better in the present, not just in the future. And he offered this, and, and that's why she said, give me of this that I thirst not, not again. She might have initially been thinking about her physical thirst, but it was going much deeper than that, wasn't it? I wonder if you've taken hold of that promise of the Lord Jesus today. And if you have, even for those of us who have come to trust the Lord, are you still going back to that well? I like how she even put it, the well is deep. <laughs> There's a lot to explore. There's a lot to enjoy of the flowing rivers of water that the Lord Jesus wants to share and give to you. Sometimes I think we're in a chronic state of spiritual dehydration. If I can use it, that's a good Arizona concept, right? We're all dehydrated over there because of how dry it is. Is your spiritual life now a little dry? 
You have access to this well. You've got the resources of Niagara Falls in front of you. And yet you're thirsty? Don't let that happen. Come, taste, see, the Lord is good. Ho, as he says in, in Isaiah, everyone that thirsteth, come, drink. The Lord has something for you today. I'm convinced of it. Don't walk away from the resources that he's trying to supply you. The place, the prophecy, the problem, the promise, the person. That's really the answer, isn't it? She didn't need to be able to get to the water at a later time in the day. She didn't need a bigger water pot. She didn't need the latest water pot, you know. She didn't have to go onto Pinterest and find the best looking water pot and, and, and bring it to get more. She needed to meet the Lord Jesus. As we sometimes say, she had five husbands before, had a sixth now. She needed to meet the seventh man. She needed to meet the perfect man, the man Christ Jesus. And that's why when she started to understand who he was, she left her water pot. Because she realized it was less about the water pot and more about him. And that's why we preach the gospel as we do so clearly. We're not trying to recruit people to Claremont Bible Chapel, no disrespect. We're not trying to get you to join an organization, a firm, or a company. We want to introduce you to the most beautiful person in the world, the Lord Jesus. And for those of you who know the Lord Jesus, are you enjoying him as a person? I've said it a thousand times, I'll say it again. God is not a subject to learn. He's a person to know. Are you daily enjoying the person of the Lord Jesus? It's not hard to enjoy. And yet we get busy with this, that, and the other thing, and sometimes even good things, even spiritual activities. We lose the person of Christ in it. God, help us to want to enjoy him. We spoke to the young people last night about that beautiful verse in Psalm 73 where Asaph was so discouraged he had completely lost perspective on reality. And then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, everything changed. Are you routinely and regularly and systematically going into the sanctuary of God, spending time alone with the Lord Jesus, enjoying him for yourself? And that's not to make light of, of Larry and I speaking this weekend, but you know, I try to really enjoy what I've prepared. And then, to be honest, it's kind of leftovers for you. Right? Kind of like laps over. I mean, and it's not to say that, that it's not designed that way because the scripture teaches that we have teachers and, and, and that's a good way to do it. But, you know, it's kind of like milk. You know, it's already gone through someone's digestive system. I'm not trying to creep you out or anything, but you know what? <laughs> that's why I think when you talk about the milk of the word versus the meat of the word where you go in there and cut it up yourself, you know. But it's one thing to come to a meeting like this and enjoy the Lord Jesus. And I hope you do. It's my whole premise this weekend. It's just to have you enjoy him. You enjoy him on your own, not just hearing about it from someone else or studying it with someone else, but you yourself enjoy time. You know what it's like even in your personal relationships. And I can talk about great times with Heather and we can enjoy this and talk about this. I just want to spend time with her. I just want to be in the same room with her. Do you want to be, can I put it that way, in the same room with the Lord Jesus? Do you invite him into your room to enjoy time with him? 
The person is central, not only to this passage, but indeed to the life that we wish to have. The final two, uh, the next P is the progress. Notice her progress. For the Canadians, progress. That was one of the toughest words for me to give up, I got to tell you. Process and progress is what we would say in Canada. And here it's process, you know? Like, do you actually have to plug your nose while you say the word, right? It's not Colorado, it's Colorado. I mean, I just feel like I should be plugging my nose, you know? But um, um, notice here the progress that she's making. She starts with thou being a Jew to serve, to profit, to the very Messiah of God. And although we would love the notion that we come and share the gospel with someone who's never heard it before, that they're saved in 10 minutes, baptized in 20, and in fellowship in 25, we'd love that, but that's not the typical course, is it? As as she starts to process these things in her mind and think it through, as it was made personal to her, The Lord Jesus gives us a beautiful example of how to share our faith here, doesn't he? He was kind and gentle to her, but at the right time, he put his finger on the problem. The problem she had was sin. Now, I talked about the thirst center earlier, and sometimes we we, we avoid the word sin, kind of like a, you know, we don't want to offend people. But your thirst center is built that way because sin is never going to be settled in your life until you come to Christ. And we might sugarcoat it and say, I'm not a sinner. You know, I wasn't in a correctional facility. You know, sin is about, when we used to do that that whiteboard thing I was talking about, we'd often draw sin with a small S, a capital I, and a small N. You know, because I is the centerpiece of sin. Isn't it? I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. The in-your-face kind of attitude and approach that so speaks of our society today. And that sin question has got to be dealt with. You can try and sweep it under the rug. You can try and pretend it doesn't exist. I love how the scripture describes sin in so many different ways. There's, there's these sort of pictures that I have. You know, one, one description of sin is, is, is falling short. You know, it's like the, the high jumper that goes to run to jump over, over the, the, uh, uh, the bar and slips or something and goes completely under it. <laughs> That's awkward, right? That's on international television, right? And, and someone just falls short of it. That's one aspect of sin. There's another aspect of sin where there actually is a line and someone crosses it. You're not supposed to cross the line. That's often translated transgression. And then there's a third Hebrew word for sin, which is often translated iniquity, which is kind of also like a line. So either you're falling short of the line when you're supposed to cross it, you're crossing the line when you're not supposed to. Iniquity is crossing it back and forth and back and forth, and then just like stamping on the line, literally. Like literally, I'm going to do my own thing. And it's no surprise that it's used in the verse, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is saying, I don't care what God says and what his standard is, I'm the standard. If those three elements of sin don't resonate with you, you are in denial. Period. So the sin question had to be answered. And so the Lord, as I say, was gentle with her, but then put his finger on the issue. She knew it. 
when she responded so beautifully. As I say, not only um, did her own understanding change and she came to understand who the Lord Jesus was, as we come to a close, the final P is, you know it, process, process, right? So not only the personal progress that she made to coming to Christ, look at what happened there afterwards. I mean, if you, had, if you didn't know the outcome of this story, and we went back and read the chapter before this, if you're not familiar with John chapter 3, it's a story of Nicodemus who meets personally with the Lord Jesus. So here the Lord Jesus, chapter 3 meets with Nicodemus, chapter 4 meets with the woman at the well. Again, not to sound too much like Sesame Street, but one of these things is not like the other. Right? I mean, they're radically different people. Here's a Samaritan outcast, and here's someone who is of the highest level of the religious order of the day. Which one of the two would you expect the end of the story to be? They're going to be a missionary and lots of people are going to get saved. Right? If we did the you know, audience response system vote right now, it would be like 99.9 Nicodemus, right? 0.1 for the woman at the well. Oh, we don't even have a name for her. But look what happened. Not that Nicodemus didn't ultimately testify, Lord, of course, we know he did. And he exerted his influence in the right way. So I'm not making light of Nicodemus. But who would have thought that this woman, who the disciples even marveled the Lord Jesus was talking to, now all of a sudden she goes and tells people, so much for hiding to get your water in the middle of the day. She tossed that right out. She went right to them. She says, look, you've got to meet this guy. He told me everything I knew. I think he's the Messiah. You can imagine how excited she would be. And what was beautiful is that the initial response was to her. They did believe her. It was when others and others come that they ultimately said, you know, it's not really just because of what you said. It's because we've seen him ourselves. And that's a beauty of the gospel. You can try to trust me today. I hope I'm a relatively trustworthy person. But if you're going to come to Christ today, it's because you meet him personally. I can't do that for you. And oh, how beautiful the text ends. He says, now we believe that he is indeed, as we read, the savior of the world. Not just the savior of a few Samaritans or the Jews. To the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Wow. Wow. A greater than Joseph is here. I hope you see that. So as we come to the close of this conference, again, my deepest appreciation for having us here, my hope more than anything else, is that your love for the Lord Jesus would be deepened, that it would change your walk tomorrow, that as now you study the scriptures, you'll find that he's greater than all. We've only scratched the surface of one element of the Gospel of John, in thinking about the superiority of Christ. He wants to be on the throne of your heart. And he wants to stay on that throne. My prayer is that that would be true of all of us this week. God bless each of you and all the, uh, 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 the um, assemblies that are represented here today. We thank God for you. And we trust to see you very soon. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are uh, most grateful for the opportunity to be together again today. We're thankful for the organizers of this conference and all of the effort, some of it unseen, that prepared the conference for us to be able to enjoy it together. Father, most of all, we're thankful today for the Lord Jesus. 
Oh, how wonderful that he gives us that water that will cause us never to thirst. How grateful we are that we know the Savior of the world. Father, I pray earnestly if there are individuals here today that don't know the Lord Jesus, that they'd come to Christ. Oh, Father, help them to leave their water pot behind and come to him. For those of us who know him, Father, that our love would be deeper, that it would not just be in word or in name, but that it would be true. That they would know, that the world would know that we are his and he is ours. So, Father, we pray for journeying mercies. We know some are traveling a long distance tonight. We know a lot of sacrifices have been made for this conference, and we ask thee to bless everybody as they travel their different directions. Warm our hearts and strengthen us with the truth of the unity of the body of Christ and draw us closer to him. In his name we pray.